Hey there, listeners. Welcome to Horror Movie Club, the show where two dudes who are not quite nerds but not quite noobs choose a horror movie each week to rate and review. I'm Brian. I'm on the phone with Ashvin, and today we are talking about Reanimator from 1985, directed by Stuart Gordon, written by Dennis Powley and William Norris, based on the 1922 short story Herbert West Reanimator by H.P. Lovecraft, starring Jeffrey Combs, Bruce Abbott, Barbara Crampton, and David Gale. And in this film, a medical student attempts to bring the dead back to life with disastrous consequences. If you're new to the show, we will talk about the movie spoiler-free, just kind of background info for the first 15 or 20 minutes. But after that, we're going to play some transition music and then spoil everything, walk through the plot in detail, and review the movie. This was kind of a request by Big Turkey, I think, or at least he mentioned it in a discussion of the type of movies we should cover more of. I think there's a push for us to cover more like schlock and camp and stuff like that. Oh, okay. So that's kind of Especially from the 80s. Sure. And that's squarely like where this falls. I would say so. I would would definitely call this a campy movie. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Uh, does that make sense to you? I think so. Uh, it's it's so hard because I, I feel like so many movies we see from the 80s just because of the nature of uh, the f- special effects uh, and the acting then can kind of be written off as, as campy or, or slacky. But I, I know like other films are a lot more serious. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, it's called a horror comedy. And it's interesting because I think horror comedy and camp can be one and the same, but I almost am tempted to like not call this a horror comedy and just stick with the camp label because I don't know. I mean, there are lines that I think are intended to be funny, but yeah, it's not really jokey. It's just <laughs> exactly. outlandish and exaggerated. Exactly. Yeah. And H.P. Uh, Lovecraft, uh, it's kind of based on a story of his and I've never heard him like called comedic, is he? No, he he's utterly serious in all the stuff I've read from him at least Uh, but I know there are like Lovecraft scholars probably listening who might say otherwise no I don't think he was aiming for the comedy and this original script wasn't aiming for comedy either that kind Mm. of ended up getting added later later on yeah I feel like the lighter comedic moments are more in the production than like any kind of uh, in the script or anything right right like just the way it was made kind of yeah yeah and yeah, some of the performances even are just really over the top. Sure. Yeah. That's some true. of what's just happening on screen is just, it can't not be campy to a degree. <laughs> I know. Just the reaction to what you're seeing. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You can't react in a way that's not a laugh. <laughs> yeah. And it's kind of cool because I feel like the movie knows what it's doing and it's pretty self-aware. Yeah. Right. Um, so let's see what, I guess... If you want to put another subgenre tag on here, zombie movie, loosely. I was going to ask you, uh, is it zombie? Because if anything, I always get confused on this because zombies like a lot of uh, the dead coming back to life. But then you've got um, viruses that bring people back to life. You've got the um, Night of the Living Dead, which isn't a virus, but that's something else. And then this one's almost more like Frankenstein, where it's like a procedure that's making people come back. So you think this all falls under the umbrella of zombie? I think so. I think it could. Okay. Or vaguely monster movie, right? And then that brings up the question, is Frankenstein a zombie right. movie? Yeah. Which I I don't think so. Um, and these aren't really looking to eat people either necessarily. Yeah, it's a tough call. Mm. It's a tough call. Yeah, yeah. I feel like a lot gets thrown under that. Um, but yeah, I, I, I definitely conceptually 
falls like it feels like a zombie. Right, right. Uh, before we go too much further, shout out to patrons. Um, we have a Patreon episode out on the Crow, by the way, if you patrons haven't listened yet. And thank you to new patrons Cody B and Quint H. We really appreciate your support of the show. Um, I'm not sure whether to do a content warning for this episode or not. There's some sexual assault in the plot walkthrough portion of this movie. I'm not sure if that discussion is blunted by its pure outrageousness in camp or if it's the opposite, but yeah. you're safe to listen to the top half of the episode either way. Yeah, it's a lot of mixed feelings about that uh, scene. Because on one hand, like yes. this is outrageous, it's supposed to be crazy and, and funny, but then it's like, holy shit, what are, what are we watching here? Yeah, and I think, I feel like there's no way to avoid a deep dive on that scene and, and how, because this is not the first time in recent in the past few weeks even that we've watched like an, a sexual assault that was just so over the top that it seemed to be played for laughs and it's like yeah this is funny and entertaining but is this okay that i think it's funny and entertaining right, exactly. so it's it's a weird awkward space that we'll yeah do our best to to hash through looking forward to it but we'll warn you warn you when it's coming so you can if this has already been plenty for you just to hear this discussion, you can turn it off at that point or fast forward. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> you hadn't seen this before. First time watch for me. How about you? <laughs> uh, I think this was the third time I've seen it. Oh, uh, when, when was the first time you saw it? So the first time I saw this, I think, was like 2006 or something. Oh. And it was one of the early on-demand viewings from Netflix like when you could I don't even know what they called it but you could like play it on your computer oh, it was, when they first launched like streaming it was streaming yeah, yeah yeah oh that's cool I don't think people even called it streaming back then yeah yeah oh that's awesome that it was one of the first films on there it's not on there anymore is it no it's not available on Netflix anymore I think I watched this on Shutter. yeah same but I didn't like it at the time I gave it a two-star review and then I watched it a couple of years ago again for the first time in a long time, and my views changed a little bit, so we'll see where I go. But anyway, Wait, yeah. you were reviewing films in 2006? <laughs> yeah. What, to yourself? I, you, well, dude, back in the day, there was a robust review feature on Netflix where people wrote reviews, oh, and they also made lists. Like, Netflix was a place to just go read about movies you could read people's reviews right. you could look at people's lists of top 10 zombie movies yeah and that was a good place to find out too about like obscure movies you'd maybe never heard of before it was a lot like letterboxd is today i mean it was letterboxd is awesome so it's not like it rivaled letterboxd but that was where you could go for that kind of stuff Ah, that sounds familiar now that you say that i, I wonder why they got rid of that feature Maybe, uh, yeah, that's that's interesting. Oh, probably because they're putting out their own content now and don't want users ripping it up or something. Yeah, that I wonder. I wonder. Also, I just feel like they it probably made more sense to focus their servers on on bandwidth you know. uh, for movies. Exactly. Yeah, yeah the stuff that was really their wheelhouse. I guess. Yeah. Oh, cool. See, somewhere on on their database or on their server, there's a two star rating from you on this film. Yes, right. yeah. Right. I can go back into my account and, and find it. <laughs> I think I just said something like, I don't get what the fuss is about. Like mm. Everyone talks about this Dayglow animated, reanimator fluid and that's it. Because the reviews at the time didn't seem to have much intelligent stuff to say on this movie. Ah, but. okay. 
I think movie discourse has changed. Online movie discourse has changed quite a bit since then. Too. Sure, sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, 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 this wasn't on my radar. I think I think when you mentioned it, I had it confused uh, with the movie. Wasn't there a Matrix movie called Reanimator or something? Uh, isn't that like a, an animated Matrix film? Um, I'm not sure I can help you here. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know why. Like, I, I don't know if you'll like have mentioned this movie to me, and I just assumed it had something to do with the Matrix. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I had no idea uh, what you're talking about when you mentioned this movie. So, oh. uh, no hype going into it for my part. Okay, <laughs> you were like, when are the slow bullets gonna come? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Where's Counter Reeves at? <laughs> uh, so, Stu- Stuart Gordon. Speaking of that outrageous scene, he seems to be a provocateur by nature. One of his early plays involving involved locking the audience in the theater wow. and taking like audience plants, audience plants, people who were seemed like they were part of the audience, but they were in on it. And they were like humiliated and beaten and raped like for pretend to coax the rest of the audience into taking some sort of action just to like see what people would do. And then another play he made was like a politicized version of Peter Pan portraying an incident with the Chicago PD where they tear gassed him for protesting Vietnam and that got him arrested for obscenity. Uh, So yeah, he he doesn't shy away from uh, offensive or provocative content. Wow, good for him. Yeah, yeah. And he would later do some plays that were successful. One had a brief run on Broadway. Others were adapted to film or TV. He turned Reanimator into a successful musical in the 2010s. That's pretty cool. But his film career um, began with Reanimator, actually. That was his first feature-length movie. He followed it up with more that included things like From Beyond from 1986, Dolls from 86, The Pit and the Pendulum from 91, Castle Freak from 95, and Dagon from 2001, among others. Some trends in his movies, he adapted the works of Lovecraft a lot. He did it in Reanimator, From Beyond, and Dagon. And he adapted Edgar Allan Poe in Pit and the Pendulum and an episode of Masters of Horror that he did. He also did three movies with both Jeffrey Combs and Barbara Crampton starring alongside each other. So they were a bit of a dynamic duo there for a while. Hey, have we seen From Beyond? We saw The Beyond. Oh, from Lucio Fulci. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I was wondering. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Th- 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 I was pretty sure we hadn't. Th- so, have you seen any of his other films? Yeah, <clears throat> I put him on my little nerd newbometer. So. Okay. I've seen From Beyond. This one, obviously, Dolls, The Pit and the Pendulum, and Castle Freak. Cool. I actually I've really enjoyed discovering his work. It's even when his movies aren't amazing, they're interesting. Yeah. He's, He's kind of a unique filmmaker. Did, did you mention he's the writer for Honey, I Shrunk the Kids? I didn't, yeah. Oh, yeah. He co-wrote Honey, I Shrunk the Kids <laughs> along with Brian Usna, who produced this movie. Ah, cool. I can see some similarities between that film and this one. Yes. Um, speaking of Brian Usna and 80s camp and schlock, he made a movie, he directed a movie called Society, Brian Usna did, that I think we should cover. Oh, a horror film? Yeah, yeah. It's got one of the most outrageous over-the-top conclusions I've, I think I've ever seen in a movie. Oh, cool. And I'd like to see your reaction to it. Yeah, let's check it out. Yeah, I think somebody requested that, so 
We'll get around to that soon. All right. Uh, yeah. Barbara Crampton, 80s Scream Queen with Chopping Mall. Another one we should cover. Mm-hmm. Um, this movie and From Beyond. She's been in more recent films like Your Next, We Are Still Here, and last year's Jacob's Wife. She's now a producer, all-around champion for horror movies. And um, Jeffrey Combs was actually in more modern stuff than I realized. He was in I Still Know What You Did Last Summer, The House on a Haunted Hill remake, and Fear.com, and Would You Rather. Oh, cool. I didn't realize he was still going. That's great. Yeah, so they're, they're both still around and kicking. I remember seeing him on an episode of Creep Show as well. So Yeah, nice. They're I, still on the scene. I'm surprised uh, Barbara Crampton, like she's got such a reputation but yeah, looking at her film work in the '80s, there's like three horror films, but she's known as like this, uh, this like legendary scream queen. Just uh, I, I feel like I'm missing something on the math. Yeah, you know what? I I'm kind of in the same boat with you. Like I I understand the appeal because in those three movies, she's awesome and kind of iconic. Mm-hmm. But I was like, oh, I better you know catch up on her filmography, or at least like refresh my memories because I know people are all about Barbara Crampton and I was surprised too she's not in that many horror films right right for her reputation exactly yeah yeah there's probably some we forgot to mention or maybe looked at and didn't even realize they're horror movies but sure yeah she's you hear the 80s scream queen Barbara Crampton you you expect a minimum (laughs) yeah right right um but and I think her her perception in the fandom too is enhanced by the fact that she's still making movies mm-hmm. and she, she writes like a monthly column or quarterly column, I guess in Fangoria. Oh, cool. She's, she's a producer. So she's still very much on the scene. Okay, great. This movie's got a rotten tomatoes critic score of 94, a user score of 82. That 94 is amazing actually. Just considering the type of movie it is. I know that's really impressive. It had a budget around one million and only made two million in the box office, but it was only released in 129 theaters. It was released unrated, so I think it had trouble getting promotion and distribution due to that. They didn't bother submitting it to the MPA for fear of an X rating, and it sounds like they later edited an R cut. But it seems like that didn't really see the light of day that much, aside from maybe a few versions of home video releases. Yeah. Yeah, the, the the added scenes on that one don't sound that appealing either. You know, there were some like logic jumps in this movie that the deleted scenes, oh, could the have scenes helped. that were included in that R cut, mm-hmm. helped to explain. Oh, okay, okay. Um, I would guess that it's a better movie without them, but there is a cut. I feel like it was called like the integral cut or something like that, that has all the gore. It's the unrated release with an extra 20 minutes of stuff that was in that R uh, release. Okay. So Got deleted it. scenes, essentially. Sure, sure. And it, you're pretty sure what we saw is the unrated version? Yeah, I am. Yep. Okay. Yeah, I got to believe there wasn't anything really cut out of that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's a good guess. <laughs> I hope, hope you're right. <laughs> uh, kicked off a franchise a bit. There was a sequel, Bride of Reanimator, in 1990 and Beyond Reanimator in 2003. I haven't seen either one of those. I'll probably get around to it at some point. Um, Let's see. I don't know. What else do you want to talk about? Score was inspired by the score for Psycho. Mm -hmm. You can can hear that for sure. Yep. 
Um, John Nolan, did you talk about him? The makeup no, guy? No, not yet. I, that's all I know about him. He did the makeup effects, and I, I feel like those are pretty well done in this film, or like stand out. They're very good. Yeah, John Nolan, and then Anthony Dobin, maybe, is how you pronounce his name, did like makeup effects too, but I think he specialized in the mechanical effects for Dr. Hill's body, which was really cool. Yeah. Um, and John Carl Beekler worked on effects on this movie too. Um, and I don't know if you remember, but he was the director of Friday the 13th and New Blood. Oh, cool. And did a lot of the effects on that movie too. So Okay, nice. That was the last one we saw, right? Uh, no, no. We saw Manhattan, remember? Oh, yeah, yeah. New Blood was uh, number six or seven? That was New Blood was seven. Seven, okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Wait. Yeah, that was seven, right? God, I get the... Yep. Okay. Jason Lives was six, New Blood was seven, oh, Manhattan's yeah. eight. Gotcha. Okay. Um, and then a, a weird connection I found. Later tonight, we're recording an episode on Wrong Turn 2003, and a woman named Desiree Soto Vaughn did special effects makeup in both of these movies. Wow. No way. Yeah, about 20 years apart. 20 years apart. That's crazy. Impressive. Um, also, uh, this film, I think the script was first written as a play, and then it was written as a TV show, and then it was <laughs> turned into a movie. So kind of crazy that it went through so many different updates on the format. It did. It's really interesting, too, because you think it would have then got really bloated as a TV show. Right. And I'm surprised that I just didn't really see that in the final cut of the script, you know, or what we saw on screen. It doesn't feel like it evolved from other stuff that sometimes you can get little flavors of adaptations like that where it's like, oh, something mm-hmm. didn't, didn't quite translate here. But I think it was pretty focused as far as like a 90-minute-ish movie. I think so, yeah. I, I think when we talk through the plot, uh, yeah, I, I, there's some some parts where I wonder if like that kind of comes through that this uh, had other formats intended originally. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I could see some potential there. I don't think any of it couldn't be answered by deleted scenes, but hmm. we'll we'll do- talk more about that in detail as we walk through the plot. Sounds good. Any other background? No, I think you had everything I had. Okay. I'm sure we could talk forever about H.P. Lovecraft, if or if some people could, probably not <laughs> us. <laughs> I really want to read uh, some of those books. Have, have you read any of his work? I have. I'm not as over the moon about it as a lot of people are. But I mean, he's one of those people who, regardless of what you think of his work, is super influential on the genre, the conventions, influenced writers like Stephen King and other creators. So, um, yeah, some of his most popular ones were The Call of Cthulhu, The Shadow Shadow Over Innsmouth, Color Out of Space, The Dunwich Horror. Yeah, I've read a handful of those. They're interesting reads, but it's, I think, I almost feel like he's a little bit overrated, but who the hell am I to to say that? His concepts are great, but the the writing is kind of predictable and I don't know. He's, He's become, it's almost like both a strength and a weakness so oftentimes in his movies, or his movies. His stories, he'll say, his descriptors are like cop-outs, like uh, proportions beyond the human imagination or <laughs> colors the human mind wasn't meant to comprehend. It's sure. just like, okay, yeah. you do that a lot, man. <laughs> You're starting to sound kind of lazy. Yeah, yeah. But other people really like champion that as 
making you put the pieces together yourself. And they're these otherworldly beings, so we don't know what they look like. Uh, yeah, yeah, he's prodding the imagination. If you read a bunch of it at once, it can get a little monotonous. I would gotcha. say pick pick up a story of his here and there. Yeah, okay. Sounds good. Yeah, I'll check some of that out. Uh, but I'm sure there are plenty of Lovecraft scholars rolling their eyes at me right now. He's um, he's the tentacle guy, a tentacle guy, right? He's a tentacle guy, yeah. Yeah. Which <laughs> I feel like early on we were trying to determine what Lovecraftian meant. Yeah. I, years ago, and we were like, I think it just means with tentacles. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which I mean, I, I didn't. Which it kind of does. I, I didn't see too many tentacles in this. I mean, there's maybe one scene that kind of fits on that, but I don't know. This is not a very Lovecraftian movie, even though it's a Lovecraft adaptation. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Uh, there are certain attributes, like a a man on a quest for knowledge, I think, is Lovecraftian. Mm. Okay. But usually he's like poking at the outer reaches of reality in our universe. Sure. I suppose this is parallel. He's kind of like poking at the outer reaches of- Life. Nature and life and human existence. Yeah. Um, but it's not quite as cosmic and otherworldly as most things we normally call Lovecraft. Sure, sure. That makes sense. Yeah. Ohio Connection time? Let's do it. All right. As always, our friend Alex connects every movie we watch to our home state of Ohio for us. Alex owns a jukebox bar and restaurant in Cleveland, Ohio, so swing by for some great drinks and great food. And Alex says, Reanimator is a comedy horror film loosely based on the 1922 H.P. Lovecraft serial novelette Herbert West Reanimator. Lovecraft's works have influenced countless writers and other creators, including Stephen King, who cites him as a major influence on his works. In 2020, newly elected small-town mayor Lehman Kessler took TikTok by storm when his online persona as Mayor Lovecraft went viral, having gained roughly 130,000 followers on the platform since taking office. Much of Kessler's popularity stems from his creation of area-specific cryptids and creatures in his video. <clears throat> videos. His original viral video featured a mysterious raven queen, though following videos have introduced hits like The Moss Goblin and The Tree of Blaze. Kessler is also the host of an H.P. Lovecraft-themed YouTube channel called Ask Lovecraft, Lehman Kessler is the mayor of Gambier, or probably Gambier, a small town home to Kenyon College located in Knox County, Ohio. Ah, uh, cool. That's awesome. Good connection, Alex. Yeah, pretty neat mayor. Yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, probably the most interesting thing about that town. Right. <laughs> Although I remember hearing about Kenyon College when I was looking at schools. Do you remember? Uh, I feel like I met like one or two people who went there. I, I never understood where it was. Uh, what it... Me neither. I still don't. They might have a sports team of note. Mm. Okay. Yeah. 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 I'm sure a sports team of note is what jocks say. <laughs> you know, the school with the sports team of note, that's us. <laughs> that's what they're cheering at the game. I'm just in the stands cheering, <laughs> yeah. cheering for a sports team of yeah, note. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Okay, bud. Well, let's spoil the plot, uh, walk through everything and review it. But do you mind if I go grab another beer before we get into this? Sure. Go for it. Okay. I'll be right back. Hey, man, uh, I'm back. Hey, how'd it go? 
good. I'm a little concerned. Um, our neighbor's cat was in our refrigerator, and I'm just not mm. sure if my wife put that there or what's going on. I'm sure there's a really good reason to have a cat in the I, fridge. I would imagine. I hope so. I'm going to have to confront her after this recording. <laughs> Should be an interesting conversation. <laughs> Uh, okay, so the film opens at a medical school in Switzerland where we see concerned staff trying to force open a locked door to get the doctor from inside. The doctor's cries we can hear from out, outside the door. They finally get through the door to find Dr. Gruber in a horrible state. His eyes burst in a bloody pop and he collapses and dies. Somebody accuses medical student Herbert West, who was locked in there with him, of killing the doctor, to which Herbert replies, no, I did not. I gave him life. So based on the title of the film, I think most viewers can assume that this guy died and Herbert somehow tried to bring him back and it didn't end well. But Ashvin, you're a first-time viewer. Is that what you gathered? I think so. Like 80% confidence in, in that. But yeah, here's here's that guy and he's probably uh, something sinister. I couldn't tell how big the doctor's role was, though, in that experiment. Like maybe it was uh, something they were doing together as friends or as colleagues. Right. Yeah. Which, yeah, do, right. you, do you think it was uh, he consented to that? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I was going to ask you the same, even like having seen the whole movie. Do we think Herbert West killed the doctor or was it just yeah. happenstance? I, um, I got to think, especially because like, we, later we find out that this doctor's like done a bunch of research on this. Uh, and, and yeah, I guess what we find out about Herbert later, I don't know. I, I kind of get the sense that maybe this was an experiment gone wrong that they both were into. Could be, yeah. Yeah, could be consenting adults here. Yeah. Um, so after uh, the credits roll, we jump ahead a bit into the near future at Miskatonic University in Arkham, Massachusetts, where we meet medical student Dan Kane trying desperately to revive a dead patient via CPR. One of the doctors chides him by saying a good doctor knows when to stop because he's really going going longer than he should on these uh, with defibrillators and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, regardless of what a good doctor knows, I feel this scene gives us a sympathetic view of Dan as a hopeful, if perhaps slightly naive, young medical student. Yeah. So I-, I was glad for this moment with Dan. Me too. I think it's a great place to start the movie with him. Yeah. So Dan is then introduced to Herbert West, who we learn is a new student at the school who transferred from Switzerland. We also meet the venerated Dr. Hill, who is a pioneer in studying the brain and performing brain surgery. West totally disses Dr. Hill and calls him a plagiarist of Dr. Gruber's work. That's who West was working with in Switzerland. Uh, so we've established here that West is on the scene and he's immediately ruffling some feathers at the school. He's got a uniquely like brash bearing and a blunt delivery. So he's a very particular type of guy. Yeah. Do you think it's written off? Uh, like, are, are we supposed to buy into it and assume, well, he's from, like, somewhere in Europe, right? So I, I think, like, is part of you, like, wondering, is this, like, just a, a cultural difference? Well, that's an interesting question. He I, he struck me as an American who was studying abroad. Oh, yeah, yeah. I see. I think he's just singularly focused and driven and has no time for social... Yeah. Pol- niceties or whatever. For? Social niceties. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I, I love that he about him. He can't be troubled. Sure. I, I like that about him. I, I like this character a lot. What do, you, do you like him? I do, I do too. I really like him. And you've strangely become endeared to him in certain ways later. Yeah. But he is just like super focused on what he's doing and nothing else. Yeah. And he makes 
some extremely questionable decisions and basically is evil. Yeah, basically. Um, yeah. But like in a really he's, nerdy way though, right? Like where it's like, uh, yeah, he's just like so gung-ho for like his experiment or like the truth or like what, trying to get to uh, science, I guess. Yeah. Dude, so I was, I've been catching up on like 1920s horror over the past year or so. Mm-hmm. Catching up meaning, you know, just a handful of them or so I'd never seen. But it made me realize how prevalent the trope of a mad scientist is that we don't even realize when we're seeing it anymore. Like, I don't really think of this as like a mad scientist movie, Mm -hmm. but it totally is, right? Yeah, yeah, you're right. Like we're talking about, oh, is it a zombie movie? Is Frankenstein a zombie? Zombies, or Frankenstein's kind of a mad scientist movie too. Sure. So is Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, like the story itself. Yep. You know, these are literary works from like the 1800s. Right. And- you can even see it now in like super modern movies. You don't even think about it, but oftentimes the villain is revealed to be somebody who was like on this quest for knowledge or power or orchestrated the whole thing. Right. It's not even restricted to horror movies anymore. It's, you know, it feels like a Marvel movie plot or something. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to think of. Uh, yeah, yeah, you must be right. It's like pretty normalized now. And like maybe that, that whole like tag has even gone away. Just, yeah, right? Like you think of it as like when you were a kid, you thought mad scientists like a, Guy in a goofy lab. laugh and frazzled hair, a lab and beakers yeah. and cackling. But it's in like everything all the time. It's It's got to be one of the most common tropes sure. in a, any sort of fiction, I feel like. Yeah, yeah. That's crazy how it's permeated the culture. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, he, he's at school. He's ruffling some feathers. And speaking of like the school politics... We also learn that Dan, our main character, is secretly engaged to the dean's daughter, played by Barbara Crampton, and they plan to break the news and get married as soon as Dan gets his MD, but they're keeping it on the down low until then. An intimate moment of theirs is interrupted at Dan's apartment by a knock on the door as Wes has arrived in response to a wanted ad that Dan has posted for a roommate. Dan agrees to let him live there despite his curious interest in the house's cellar, and the covert protests from his fiance Meg. Um, what do you think uh, uh, threw off Meg so quickly? I mean, he's a like we were talking about before. He's like so socially inept and rude, and he is also like super interested in this basement, which is pretty <laughs> creepy. I think she's just like this dude rubs me the wrong way. Do not agree to this. Yeah, yeah, but he still does it. Rightfully so, and yeah, he's. He still does it based on the expression he sees when Wes holds out the cash. Dan really needs the money. Right. The next few scenes further develop the relationships between characters. Um, while Dr. Hill performs a ghastly brain procedure for his class, West ignites an argument with him regarding how long the brain can stay alive after the body has died. And Hill clearly has an ego and does not like being challenged. And this... <laughs> This challenge takes place via a series of pencil snaps. (laughs) That was so great, man. That was awesome. He's just like holding the pencil and breaking it. Like, 
as he sits as a student in the class. I was wondering, like, what, 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 the, what does that mean? Like, if you saw someone in your class just breaking pencils, like, would you take it as, like, an insult, or is that just... Right? Like, yeah. that's your problem, man, your pencils. <laughs> yeah, you're just ripping through pencils here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that's... You're going to regret that later, bro. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good luck sharpening that end. <laughs> uh, yeah, that, that, was, that was a weird move, but it, hilarious. Yeah, it was pretty funny. Yeah. Um, we get a scene where dinner is being eaten at the dean's house and Hill gives a really awkward toast to Meg and calls her the obsession of all who fall under her spell. So we're learning not only do West and Hill have some tension, but Hill's, you know, a dick and a weird guy. Yeah. Um, and we learn that Meg's uneasiness about West is verified when she finds Dan's dead cat in West's mini fridge alongside some neon green glowing liquid. Dan cannot kick out West, even though he wants to, because West threatens blackmailing him by breaking the news that he and Meg are sleeping together, um, which would be a school scandal, and Dan could get kicked out of school, etc. So they can't afford to kick him out. He stays. Doesn't he also believe West when West is like, uh, I found it dead? Like, I, how, how convinced is he that West killed the cat? Right. Like, West is a sociopath, so you don't... On one hand, that means, yeah, he could have easily killed this cat. On the other, it means he might be telling the truth and just is really awkward about it and genuinely yeah. didn't know what to do with the dead cat when he found it. Yeah, it's not very plausible. He, he found it, didn't want to, like, break his heart, so he just put it in the fridge until it's all yeah, timing. Yeah, right? Yeah. Right. Um, I think he fucking killed the cat, though. I'm pretty sure. How about you? All right. Uh, uh, yeah, you're probably right, yeah. You think my wife killed the cat, too? <laughs> I don't want to say anything again. But yeah, I, I think <laughs> it's possible. I think we both know the answer. Right. Parenthood's been tough. Yeah, I mean, she's got to let off some steam. <laughs> Mama needs to let out some yeah. steam. Uh, okay, so let's see. That night, Dan wakes up in the middle of the night to some horrible noises, only to find that West is in the cellar with the cat Rufus, viciously attacking him. Dan and West fight off the cat together, and West eventually explains that his neon glowing reagent, is what he calls it, can bring dead things back to life. He demonstrates it again on the cat, which they've already <laughs> re-killed, and Dan is awestruck. I don't know about you, man, but I love this scene in the basement. What did you think about it? I liked it. It was, it was like really goofy the way they were fighting the cat and how it would just like fly at them from like random <laughs> angles. I don't know if it was yes. like a budget constraint or something, but it just looks really funny. And then the fact that they kill it and then he has to like prove it. So he brings it back to life <laughs> again. It's just, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty comedic. Yeah. It. And it's like gnarly. It's like a gnarly messed up broken in half cat when he brings <laughs> yeah. it back to life. Yeah. Yeah, it's really well done. I think that, yeah, I think the scene is like cinematically really well done too. And I'm impressed that this was Gordon's first movie. The, the light is kind of strobing. It seems like it's like a hanging light that's swinging back and forth. Mm -hmm. So you get this strobing effect as they're walking around the room. And the two of them, Bruce Abbott and Jeffrey Combs, like really went all out in their performances, especially in the physicality. They're just like... Sure knocking shit over and falling over themselves. Yeah. They throw the cat across the room and it's when it hits the wall, like some extra gore like sticks to the oh, wall yeah. as the cat slides <laughs> down. I don't know how they did that or if it was just like a perfect execution of the gore they had attached to this fake cat. Right. But it was just 
a nice little extra touch. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was good. Uh, yeah. Do you, you think Herbert wanted uh, the, the roommate to hear it, like doing this? Like, was his intention to wake him up? No, I don't think it was his intention. I think it's just that he didn't. He's doing these experiments, and he doesn't quite know how things are going to react. He has an important quote here that's kind of a bit of foreshadowing for later in the movie where he says, research gets harder as the reaction is more violent in larger animals. Mm. So yeah, I don't think Wes was thinking, hey, I'm going to have a screaming cat that's going to wake up my roommate on my hands. Yeah. I think he's just thinking I, I got to perform these experiments and this lab is... Basement lab's my only place to do it. Oh, got it. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I, he didn't try to, like, hide the fact uh, once, like, Dan got down there. Uh, like, they were both kind of trying to get the cat down. So, I, I don't know, like, a part of me felt like he was, like, trying to coax Dan into becoming his partner by, like, showing him what this could do. Or I don't think he it. had the luxury of hiding it. The cat was, like, <laughs> affixed to his back and <laughs> yeah. neck, like, dug in with its claws. Sure. It's like, he's being exact, attacked by a zombie cat. He was in real distress there. Yeah, he was in legit distress. Okay. I also love that there's like been contention in their relationship, but here they seem just like oddly united in the, the front against this cat. Yeah. And then when all is said and done, they're kind of bonded by this trauma that they've shared right, together. Right, right, right. And from then on, they're just kind of like <laughs> in it buddy, together. buddy. It's, yeah. It's, yeah, they're in it together for sure. Right. Um especially after Dan goes to the Dean. So Dan goes to the Dean and tells him that West has learned how to reverse death. Uh, and the Dean just is like, fuck you. <laughs> He's so pissed about it all. And he effectively ex- expels both of them. He legit expels West. And then he has Dan's loan, student loan like pulled essentially. So Dan, can no longer attend school. This seemed really extreme because I feel like just, uh, I don't know, a half hour ago or whatever, the dean was walking around with Wes, like kind of introducing him as like this bright new kid that's here. And all of a sudden he's just like expelling both of them just because of something Dan's telling him. Exactly. And even if he believes it all wholeheartedly, all Dan did was walk in on an experiment. Yeah. And now he's getting thrown out of school. Yep. A deleted scene shows that Dr. Hill, our, who's essentially our villain, and a renowned brain scientist, is experienced in the field of hypnotism and has hypnotized the dean to go after West. Oh, no way. Because he's pissed at West from, you know, all the pencil breaking and the challenges Got it. to his ego and his expertise. Oh. So if <laughs> you, in that cut of the movie, I think his... The logic for this action would be that he's been hypnotized. That makes sense. But I don't know. Introducing like hypnotism to this movie, I feel like it I know, in, right? I know. I don't. I don't want to see the integral cut for that reason. Yeah, yeah. But that that ex- that, that makes a lot more sense though. Like why he was so extreme in this scene. Yeah, I agree. It, it does provide some logic here. Um, there are some other scenes where it could be interpreted as providing logic too. I think this is the only one where you really can't understand a character's motivation without that piece. Sure. But I'm happy to just have it be an extreme reaction without the yeah. explanation. <laughs> okay, so now Dan's screwed. He's essentially got nothing to lose at this point. So he enters into the unlikely partnership with West um, in it together, like we said. They sneak into the medical school's morgue to prove that the reagent works. And the dean finds out that they're there. 
But by the time he gets to the morgue, they've already injected a dead body with the reanimating agent. And the reanimated corpse crashes through the refrigerator door of the you know refrigerated room they're in, nearly crushing the dean who's on the other side. It grabs the dean, bites off his fingers, and slams him against the wall repeatedly until West impales it by shoving a bone, thro- bone saw through its back and out its chest. Unfortunately, the dean has already died, but West sees this as a great opportunity to use the reagent on an extremely fresh corpse, which he's never had the opportunity to try it on such a fresh corpse. Or maybe he did with, uh, yeah, what's his face? the guy in Gruber. Uh, yeah. Hans Gruber, I think, was that doctor's name. Oh, Isn't that funny? Nice. He injects the dean with the reagent, and the dean is violent and confused as he reanimates. Meg's, Meg walks in right around this time and is devastated to see her father in this state. And Dan collapses in shock. Not only am I having some affection for the unlikely partnership between Dan and West, but West covers Dan up with a <laughs> gown wraps his arms around him and tells him not to worry. It's like oddly tender. (laughs) It really is. Does he drop uh, the tape recorder in? uh, I thought he like, like they're they're recording like everything they're doing. Uh, And when he puts that blanket around him, doesn't he like put the tape recorder in there or something? Or does he like kind of steal it from him or something? Huh, I don't know. I don't know. Is there an ulterior motivation to that snuggle? That's what I assume. Because yeah, otherwise it is just a very <laughs> touching oh, moment. I like it. It's just to. a snuggle. <laughs> I thought he was like using it to like kind of smuggle uh, the tape recorder out because that was like the evidence that like this experiment had worked or something. But oh, okay, okay, gotcha. Maybe maybe it was a little bit of dual motivation. Sure, could be. I'm gonna tell myself that because I like their friendship. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, what did you think of the gore and the action in this sequence? I loved it, man. I, I can't believe how quick it escalated. Like, we had a cat dying, uh, like, 10, 15 minutes ago, and, like, suddenly now you have, like, two dead bodies, two zombies, basically, and uh, the gore, like, the way he kills the first zombie with the thing coming through his chest was great. The fingers getting bit off was, like, pretty cool and effective. Um, and then, yeah, then bringing the dad back. Uh, yeah, it's just, like, a lot, like, happened here, and it was, it was a lot of fun. And uh, yeah. cool watching them like kind of panic in, in this like small room with the zombie and then uh, in this bigger room with the with the Dean. What, what did you think? I agree, man. These are big, fun, gory scenes. And it's not like gore. The gore is over the top, but it's not so over the top that it becomes comedic in its own right. It's yeah. more like chaotic. Yeah. Uh, and intense. So right. it's cool. I really dig it. Right, right. Yeah, me too. It's interesting that you really pick up on the friendship between Dan and Herbert. Because um, even while Herbert is injecting these bodies, I feel like Dan is kind of uh, being a naysayer on the side or just like really reluctant with everything that's going on or like scared of like being caught and stuff. So uh, I can't tell like what, what's, what's Dan's motivation to be here. Is it science or supporting his roommate? I think science, um, <laughs> I, yeah, I don't think it's supporting his roommate. I think he's on a quest for science and knowledge, and he's legit curious about this. But also, I think he feels if he can prove this is right and true, that he can get the dean to reverse what he's done here. Uh, like, See, dean, I was telling the truth. Uh, like, okay. Does this change anything? Got it. Um, so he's and to- I also just feel like he's lost in life if he doesn't become an MD to him. Sure. So this is all about him trying to gain his like reputation back or like clear his name. 
I think I think a commingling. I'm trying to clear his name and just sheer curiosity. Okay. And you know, we he's painted as a hopeful, optimistic guy, perhaps by his actions in the opening sure. of the film. So if he if there's a way to save lives and yeah and uh, bring people back, then I think he's his heart is in that. Sure, makes sense. Uh, so in the fallout of all of this, Doctor Hill puts the reanimated Dean under his care. And confines him to a straight jacket in a padded room because he's just kind of like a spitting, drooling, angry weirdo. He uses the situation to unsuccessfully try to get closer to Meg, who we later learn he's obsessed with, if we didn't already know it, <laughs> when Dan finds a lock of her hair and other creepy mementos in Hill's office. That was a nice touch. I, I feel like Hill, I, yeah. Hill is like a really well done, like creepy scientist, dude. Yes, for sure. Meg is extremely upset with Dan over this whole ordeal, but also conflicted as she still clearly loves him. Dr. Hill swings by Wes's basement lab and tries to blackmail him into letting Hill take credit for the reagent. And rather than let this happen, Wes smacks Hill in the back of the head with a shovel and then decapitates him. He takes Hill's head and, realizing that he's never tried the experiment with just a part of the body... He injects Hill's head with the reagent, and at this point, Hill's head comes back to life and guides his body to knock West unconscious. He steals the reagent and escapes West and Dan's apartment, holding his own head in his hands. There's definitely some splat stick moments here as West like struggles to get the head to stand up straight mm. as he tries to perform his experiment. Yep. Then he like shoves it through one of those receipt spikes that are in like a restaurant kitchen <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah yeah the practical effects here are really good yeah um do you think that the movie gets more all-out comedic here as soon as hill's head comes off uh i actually feel like it, it slows down a little bit and becomes more of a exposition on the practical effects of like yeah mm. the body coming apart uh later on like he's putting his head in like a bucket of blood and stuff so i, I think it starts leaning into the gore so in that sense like co- gore gore comedy i, I think kind of takes off here maybe and just like how ridiculous some of like what you're seeing is um right is that, is that what you're talking about yeah yeah maybe it turns into like all out splat stick or splatter comedy yeah um yeah like you said his, hill's got his head in a like bedpan type thing and he has his body squirt extra blood into the pan and he sighs in <laughs> orgasmic pleasure as his head absorbs the new blood so yeah. yeah there's definitely some like gross out comedic moments right right which uh it's it's fun and all but i feel like the plot maybe slowed down a little bit here for like 10 15 minutes where it's more about like the body and the head and like they're um going from the basement back to his office or whatever yeah i guess there's some extended an extended scene of the body and head lumbering around and right. Dr. Hill basically getting himself situated with <laughs> yeah, his new circumstances. Exactly. Adjusting. Yeah. <laughs> like I gotta figure out life as a yeah. headless corpse. Right. Uh okay, so it's revealed that Hill has lobotomized the Dean. And since there's been some discussion regarding Hill's research of where the will is located in the brain, I assumed he removed the Dean's will which means the dean does whatever Hill tells him to. Oh, I wonder if uh, the hypnosis thing you were saying earlier too comes into play here. That's the real answer. Mm. 
But that was how I interpreted it in this cut of the movie. Oh, okay, okay. That gotcha. he had removed the will. Yeah. Because they did go out of their way to mention that a few times. Like, yeah. That he had found where the will was located in the brain. Right. Oh, good tie. And if you don't have a will of your own, I guess you would do what someone tells you. Sure, sure. But then you would do what anyone tells you, right? You wouldn't... Exactly, right. Yeah. But, yeah, I don't know. Hmm. Hypnosis is the real answer. But. <laughs> we'll pretend it isn't, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so let's see. So <clears throat> he instructs the dean to go capture Meg, and the dean does so, rendering her unconscious and delivering her to an examination table right next to Dr. Hill's head. Um, and here comes the sexual assault description and the most outrageous moment in the movie as Hill directs his body to fondle Meg's breasts, his body then picks up his head so he can kiss the naked body of Meg, who is now awakened and is in utter terror as she has regained consciousness. And then it's implied we don't quite see it or he doesn't really get the chance to complete the goal here. It's implied that the severed head of Dr. Hill begins to perform oral sex on Meg right before West and Dan burst through the door. I assume you weren't aware that this scene existed. No, not at all. That was, yeah, I, I couldn't believe what I was seeing here. This is, uh, I mean, even for the 80s, I felt like this was like really pushing the envelope. Yeah, yeah. So, <clears throat> and it's weird because as we hinted at in the beginning, there's this weird feeling of like, I was not, I mean, this is a problematic scene. Yeah. But at the same time, I was just like, oh, my goodness, like <laughs> laughing, outrageous, outraged and like, I'm not going to lie, 100 percent entertained mm. by this moment. And is that OK? Is it problematic? Like what was going through your head during it? Were you enjoying it or were you like, oh, oh this is wrong? <laughs> I, I think both, man. Like it's it's done really well and like uh, disturbing, which I think it's supposed to be. Uh, so I, I think it, it's impactful and it works uh, because it, it's amazing to see, but then also like very creepy and disturbing and like not right. And I think that's a lot of like effective horror where uh, you're doing something that's so shocking. Um, but the viewer is getting some kind of like uh, blown away by it. It's like something new that you haven't encountered yet. Exactly. Right. And that's a, a weird thing about like sexual assault in horror movies. It's like this is supposed to portray the horrific. Mm -hmm. um, but then when it's done for laughs, it's like a whole new level of like, oh, no, is this You're a right. really big problem? So you think the um, intent here was like this is like done for laughs, I guess. I mean, because yeah, I, I could see. I wouldn't say necessarily laughs, but to like make people's eyes bug out of their heads right. for sure and not just in a shameful disgusted type way right sure um i was kind of like reading up on camp and stuff like that just incidentally while i was watching this movie or this week and we happened to watch this movie and i was wondering if like some of the stuff i was reading could help us <clears throat> explain this mm. so there's an essay from 1964 by a woman named Susan Sontag called Notes on Camp. I think it's very influential and has defined a lot of writing on camp since then. So she says the whole point of camp is to dethrone the serious. Camp is playful and anti-serious. More precisely, camp involves a new, more complex relation to the serious. More and complex. Then in a book, Interesting. Yeah, right. 
And then in a book called The Philosophy of Horror, David McGregor Johnston describes elements of camp as excessiveness, theatricality, playfulness, and exaggeration. Basically, he says, what it prizes above all else is work that is over the top. So I think this scene could be perceived as an outrageous, over the top, and an exaggeration. What I think you could interpret it as an exaggeration of is like a 1950s science fiction horror movie. So, so many of those movies, like The Creature from the Black Lagoon and The Fly come to mind, are about like man going too far with technology and science and he should just leave some elements of nature alone. Like some things aren't meant to be messed with. And I'm pretty sure in those two movies I named, there's like literally a monologue of a man saying that. Like, <laughs> that word for radio. To no one in particular. Well, I guess man just can only go so far and some things. It's very hokey, mm-hmm. but that is very much the theme. And in movies like The Creature from the Black Lagoon. So I think that's a parallel between this movie and and those movies, right? Because the film opens with like a good not good doctor knows when to stop. Mm-hmm. And one thing we see in those movies too, like Creature from the Black Lagoon, is the monster like pick up an unconscious woman and carry her away to his lair. Sure, like that's a, just a horror movie trope in itself, right? Yep. Not unlike the Mad Scientist. Mm-hmm. But I feel like examining that in a campy way and going totally over the top and exaggerating with it like okay the monster carries her back to his lair and does this I think we may have even discussed this in the creature from the black lagoon even though it seems like such a bland trope and like mild you wouldn't like hesitate to let your kids watch a movie where 1950s monsters carries a woman away Mm -hmm. it implies that the monster is taking the woman as its mate and this implies sex and like that's not going to be willing so Have we just been watching monsters carry women off to, like, bestially rape them? Damn. Uh, You're saying all abduction is rape then, right? In in horror films? Well, I mean, if a monster carries away a dreamy woman who is, like, serves no other purpose in a movie than the object of desire, Mm -hmm. not saying Barbara Crampton does, but in a campy movie, in a way she does. Like, there's more to her character, but I think... Also, if this movie could be viewed as a send-up of other horror, she kind of plays that she, objectification role, too, at least very much to Dr. Hill. She does. Yeah, you're right. Yep. I think that, I mean, if you if you let your brain go to what else is going to happen there, mm-hmm. so, maybe I'm fucked up for even thinking <laughs> that. <laughs> like, no, I, that's what you're saying. So, so you're saying that this has been happening in movies uh, this is just like the first time they're like showing what like has like already been like done a million times like behind the scenes. Maybe I'm fucking insane for even <laughs> trying to draw the line. But I feel like if you're like going exaggeration over the top like these definitions of camp say, yeah. then when the movie monster carries the girl away in his arms while she's unconscious, you got to go over the top with what happens next. Sure, sure. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, I never like yeah, Creature of the Black Lagoon, even like King Kong and stuff. Like uh, I never assume 
there's like a sexual component there. I mean, yeah, obviously they're uh, after that person, but I thought it was more like a friend thing, like I want to be friends with you. Uh, right. Well, why are they killing all the dudes and taking the pretty lady <laughs> yeah. to be their friend? That's a good point. Wise up, man. <laughs> Shit. That, uh, yeah, that's some kind of filters on those whole time. <laughs> <laughs> I think maybe, yeah, I think the majority of the world is with you and Everyone listening to this is like, what the fuck <laughs> yeah, is right. Brian thinking about yeah. when he watches 1950s horror I know. Movies? I don't think he watch that stuff anymore. <laughs> <I'm just dead. laughs> uh, yeah, I, I hear it saying, man, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. And and so, yeah, maybe this isn't something new. And it's just they're, they're uh, being clever about it and like, and like uh, showing showing us what like has always been going on. Maybe, maybe, or yeah. maybe they just, maybe I'm totally overthinking it and I probably am. I don't know. But I, I mean, I hear the exaggeration, though. I mean, the whole movie, I feel like, has been kind of exaggerated till now. We just had, like, him putting his head in a bucket of blood and stuff. So it kind of fits thematically with where we're coming from. It's not like a, a like a serious movie until now, and then this happens. So I, the campiness thing definitely makes a lot of sense. Right. Like, everything's over the top in this movie. Yeah. Right. Right. I was also reading an essay from a woman named Tasha R. Taylor who wrote about... I'm just trying to tell people how much I read. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> <laughs> she wrote about Freddy's Dead, probably the mo- the campiest film in the Nightmare franchise, Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. And she talked about how that movie is the only other one of the whole franchise to directly address Petty as Freddy as a pedophile. Mm, interesting. And the only other movie that does that is the remake, which does it like ultra serious. Ah, uh, okay. It's so interesting that the ultra serious one tackles it and the campiest one tackles it. Yeah. And she's... I don't know. She doesn't do much more to extrapolate on that, but I couldn't help but like see something in that. Yeah, like, it's almost like a, a curved line, right? Uh, on one right. hand, you have extreme on one hand, and on the other hand, really serious in the middle. It's like the more soft stuff where you don't address this stuff, and so only you only hit the dark, really serious stuff in either a serious film or in a campy film. Yeah, right. Uh, really interesting. But and she was talking about it in the context of it was. It's a book about women made horror movies, so. Mm. She was talking about Freddy's Dead because it was directed by a woman. So oh. there's difference there, too, because he had a woman creator. And then Stuart Gordon is might not be fair to give him the same credit of like trying to do anything more than just vulgar entertainment. Yeah, which is kind of that description he gave at the beginning of what he did at like in a, in a theater. It kind of makes sense. Like he's right. trying to sure. make audiences uncomfortable or surprised. Yeah, yeah. And his... He, a naked woman in distress is not a unique thing in his movies either. So, right, right. Uh, I, I could told be giving him too much credit. Yeah, sure. No, the, the naked woman isn't isn't a big deal at all. I, I think it's the action being done here. And you know, right. I, I told someone over the weekend that I was going to see this woman. They're like, "Oh yeah, the movie where the 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 zombie likes head goes down." On the oh, woman. so you had it spoiled for you? Uh, oh, I, I'd already seen it by that point. Oh, okay. Yeah, gotcha. this is like a day or two after I saw it. But yeah, right. the, this seems like pretty famous. Yeah, for sure. It's got to be one of the strangest nude scenes in horror. Yeah, yeah, definitely that comes to mind. The other one that comes to mind is from Night of the Demons, another movie we covered. Mm. A nude scene in Night of the Demons. With the lipstick? Oh, 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 yeah, 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 right. Those are the two weirdest <laughs> ones that come to mind. Yeah, some body All right, stuff. so weird big tangent. Um I'll Anything else you read that you want to talk about? Some hate, man. <laughs> yeah, that's... <laughs> you sure? <laughs> uh, after Dan... I'll, I'll find something to brag about myself <laughs> right. later. So after Dan and West enter the room, 
Dan frees Meg as Wes tries to stop Hill. But Hill, in a surprise move both to the characters and to us as the audience, awakens several corpses that have been lying under shrouds on examination tables. So these corpses, in addition to the reanimated Dean, attack West and Dan, but as Meg implores her dad to stop, some part of his brain recognizes her voice, and he fights off the other corpses. How were you kind of blown away when all these corpses yeah, set up? Yeah, that was one of my favorite scenes in this. Like, holy shit. Like, the table's just turning. That's awesome. That was a really cool trick to have. Yeah. I have up the sleeve. Uh, West then injects Hill's headless body with reagent. And I'm not sure what he expects to happen, but Hill's intestines burst forth from his torso, seemingly self-aware, and wrap up West like an anaconda. Uh, Dan grants West's dying wish by grabbing his reagent and notes before he and Meg escape the morgue, but one of the reanimated corpses strangles Meg before Dan can chop its arm off. Dan hey, tries to... Oh, go ahead. Oh, that uh, the intestines coming out and strangling him, does that count as... Would that be like the tentacle aspect of Lovecraftian? Whoa, there you go. I, Although I'm sure that scene wasn't written that way. Oh, it, was, it was like <laughs> word for word. Then but it's, yeah, sure. We, yeah. <laughs> okay, just a coincidence. Yeah. Oh, man, that's a, a good point, though. I don't know. Maybe it was written that way. I get I get the sense that was a, a Stuart Gordon ad, but sure. I never read this story. Yeah, yeah. That was the closest thing I could find. To yeah, good tie to tentacles. <clears throat> so let's see. Oh, yeah, one of the reanimated corpses strangles Meg before Dan can chop its arm off. Dan tries to revive her with CPR, then takes her to an operating room where he uses defibrillators to try to shock her heart back into beating. He's alongside the same doctor as before in that opening scene where we first met Dan. In a, It's essentially a recreation of that a good doctor knows when to stop scene. As it becomes clear that Meg is not going to survive, the doctor and nurses leave the room to give Dan a moment of mourning. However, clearly Dan has not learned when to stop, and he injects Meg with a dose of reagent. And after the scene fades to black, we hear Meg's tortured screaming as she presumably comes back to life, not quite as she once was. Mm. And that's the movie. I like how they circled back on that. That, that, that was really effective. I really love that, too, and I... I even think you could view it as not just circling back, but a theme that they hammered through like the whole movie. Like a good doctor knows when to stop. And mm. Dan couldn't seem to learn that lesson. Like he agreed to let West room with him, even though common sense and his fiance told him otherwise. Mm-hmm. He went with West down this road, even though it made no sense. He had been kicked out of school. He didn't know to just walk away. He went into the morgue. Yeah. Like he never knew when to stop. And that's a, you know, an exaggeration over the topness, if we want to tie this back to 50s monster sci-fi movies. In the end, the, the main characters always learn, oh, we shouldn't we shouldn't push too hard against nature and yeah. the natural order of things. And Dan did not learn that lesson, and he pushed forth. It's a much darker view on that so, philosophy than, than those movies. Yeah, so in, in this one, do you feel like Dan becomes like the villain or like the mad scientist or like the the cause behind this or is he still kind of like the good guy at the end hmm I mean I think he's still our hero a super flawed and tragic hero but yeah I I think he in a way succumbs to that that same I guess villainy to a degree going too far to to save the life of the one he loves yeah yeah right 
yeah that, that is an interesting uh arc uh, and yeah I, I hear you like maybe that's like what he was from the beginning and now he just kind of has the power thanks to his roommate right right um, um did you feel like so so you mentioned he's the hero is he like you would say if there was a main character in this movie it's dan I would say it's Dan just because he's more th- sympathetic than Combs. Combs and Dan might get about equal screen time. Mm-hmm. I'd still say Dan gets a little bit more. Okay. Um, I'd call him the main character. Would you You think Herbert West is the main character? I, I kind of felt like Dan dropped out like halfway through, uh, especially like after the Dean gets uh, uh, killed. Um, and like, you know... Uh, Oh, Meg! Meg is like pretty upset, and like their kind of plot line stalls a little bit, and it goes more on to West, and like what he's doing in his lab and his fight with the other doctor and stuff. So yeah, I just felt like their storyline dropped a little bit uh, halfway through. Yeah, but right before that scene in the basement lab with West and Doctor Hill, there was a scene with Dan and Meg and their relationship. Yeah. Essentially, what does this mean for our relationship now? Yeah. I don't know. I think the screen time was. I think it leaned more towards Dan, but it's close. But what, what did it mean for the relationship? Like that, that I was so confused by that scene. Like uh, it was just she was like crying, and uh, she was just like really stressed about her dad. Yeah, I mean, I think they were confused too. Just like what the fuck just happened? Yeah, <laughs> I'm so mad that you were involved in something that essentially caused the death of my dad, and clearly you've gone too far and were breaking rules and doing wrong things. Right. But I still love you. And did did she? Because isn't he like, yeah, you should go away or something? Uh, Yeah, I think he was basically just like, I'm no, you know, I failed. I'm no good for you anymore. You should like go away and enjoy your life. Yeah. (laughs) She was kind of like, I I miss you or like, I want to be with you. I can't remember what she said. Yeah. I think that, yeah, you're right. They try to have like an emotional moment there and it just didn't make sense to me. Like, wait, uh, you want to tell like the woman who just like lost her father because of you to like leave town and go away somewhere nice uh it just doesn't seem like a good time to tell her to get out of here i mean i don't think he was like get the fuck out of here <laughs> get out he of town he was just like you know start start over without me i think that was what he meant to say oh uh yeah but i mean shouldn't he get out of town potentially since he was the one that fucked everything up <laughs> right right i mean maybe there's some backstory there about her always one to leave, yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just I, I feel like they, they, it got kind of like down on them, and like most of the action was happening on on this other front of uh, Herbert and the Doctor, who I think I, I feel like they emerged as the main characters towards the end. Yeah, but I, I actually really like. I think the movie really benefits from being grounded in Dan and Meg's relationship, and Herbert and Dan's relationship. Everybody had. A relationship to some degree. <laughs> but Dan, you get a relationship. <laughs> there were good character dynamics, I think, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, you yeah. Know, you've got you've got Hill versus West. You've got Hill being buddy buddy with the Dean. You've got this weird sexual thing going on between Hill and Meg. Meg doesn't like West, and Dan and Meg are in love. So <laughs> everyone is involved and has an opinion. The characters are basically pretty well developed even though we don't get their entire backstory we know who they are we know how they feel about each other what how they, they mix with each other yeah yeah, yeah. It, it puts a decent amount of effort into that kind of stuff for a movie that's just 
spraying blood and <laughs> having random body parts stuck to walls. I agree. I, I think that's the biggest strength of the film is like really strong characters with clear motives and uh, interesting relationship dynamics. That's, I, I think, the, the main thing that drives this movie forward. I, I just feel like the beginning were grounded in those two characters, Meg and Dan, uh, but I feel like that steam kind of dies at a certain point and we shift then uh, more to the doctor and uh, Herbert towards the end. Mm, okay. Gotcha. Like, and, and she becomes more of a a pawn in the game, right. I guess. If, if you're so, something I was reading about camp was saying like everything in camp becomes in quotations. Like instead of a lamp, it's a quote unquote lamp. And I think as like I don't know. I don't want to sound sexist. I think Meg, possibly for the detriment of the movie, especially it sounds like for you. Well, I don't know. She goes from being a subject and someone who's got a relationship and character dynamics to being like, quote unquote, woman in distress. Sure. And I think that due to the campy nature of the movie, it's it's like a meta almost woman in distress. Not not quite, but it's a little tongue in cheek or knowing rather than like, oh, this is a, a. Shitty role, you know, because they're, they're making fun of that trope. I, th- yeah, I mean that's the way I kind of choose to back into that or rationalize my entertainment sure. <laughs> from that scene. Yeah, um, that's an interesting <clears throat> angle that they were like, yeah, knowingly playing that angle up uh, just to make fun of it or be self. And it's just so it. over the top with Doctor Hill, just like this yeah. skeezy scheming creeper, you know? Yeah, right. That I, I think that was just where they where they decided to go. Yeah, no, if that was their intent to kind of play on those uh, stereotypes, then I, I think that makes sense. But I think she's a really good performer, too. For sure. And part of why she, despite having like a dozen 80s horror films under her belt, gets that Scream Queen represent... Rep, wow, my brain's just totally stopped. <laughs> she has that reputation. She was also in... Oh, I want to say Days of Our Lives. Like she oh. had a a long stint on a soap opera, and so she's a very skilled actress. Yeah, you see it even more in some of Gordon's other movies. Sure. So she's, I think everyone here is giving a really good performance. I agree. Yeah, and, and I love the, their relationship in the beginning. Uh, I mean, but but like they don't talk after like that scene that you just mentioned. Uh, in the house. I feel like that's like the last time they have a conversation. So we don't uh, get like a lot of closure on like where things ended with them, which maybe feeds into like the end of like, he's so desperate to bring her back to get that closure maybe or something. I I don't know. Yeah. Right. I see what you're saying, but at the same time, I feel like it's a 90 minute movie. A lot's going on. Sure. When they're not together, she's talking about him to her dad or she's talking about him. Yeah. To, yeah. I still think the movie is very centered on the fairly centered on their relationship, despite the lack of scenes with the two of them together. Got it. But I hear what you're saying. I, I feel like if any relationship uh, the movie centered on, it's the one you're talking about before, where it's like West and uh, Dan. West and Dan. Yeah, yeah. sure. I, I'd buy that too. Yeah. But I think that's a a good problem to have, where we don't know what the core relationship of the movie is. Sure. Sure. Yeah, it means we've got a dearth of relationships. <laughs> Some dearth to dig through. <laughs> I'm into relationship dearth. <laughs> <laughs> Not length. Yeah. Dirt. <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh, but also, dude, just how bonkers and amazing was that conclusion? Just like 
<laughs> the moment when those bodies rise is so cool. And then yeah. there's just like blood and guts everywhere and a torso that just bursts open and right. intestines. It's chaos and yeah. gory, bloody chaos that looks really good. The special effects in this movie are incredible. Special effects are great. It's all these like naked bodies running around. So like, yeah, everyone like looks pretty dead and gross. Uh, so <laughs> yeah. It works really well. Yeah, for sure. I think that conclusion is just a oh, unimaginable success. It's it's hard to find parallels to that in other movies where it's just like wow, yeah, perfect, right? Um, yeah, that's a lot of the good stuff I had to say about this movie. <laughs> Essentially, just the utter gory chaos and also these great performances and characters side by side. It's just a great mix. Yeah, I, I agree, man. Uh, and, and like pretty pretty imaginative, like good storytelling. Um, it, it's like pretty well paced. I, I did feel like uh, it slowed a little bit. Um, what, one thing that, you know, when you think about this script originally being for the theater, I do feel like a lot of the time you're jumping between like three locations. It's like the basement, the lab, and uh, like their house, I guess, or, their, uh, or yeah, maybe one other room. So it just it feel like it was like very repetitive in terms of like where the movie was going between like three or four settings, um, and then I I, I, thought, I felt like it did slow down a little bit when it got into like that body uh, or gore expose after uh, Doctor Hill was killed. But what what did you think of the pacing? I thought the pacing was great. I don't really feel the slowdown as much as you did, just because a head is walking, a body's walking around carrying its head during the slowdown. So. I felt like it was amusing. It was a moment worthy of slowing down for in a movie that's going for a slapstick mm. angle. Uh, and I thought the plot, I, I was more invested in that scene of the two of them discussing what they wanted to do with their relationship. Not like I was hanging on the edge of my seat, <laughs> but it sounds like you just are kind of dismissing it as a throwaway ridiculous scene. And I thought it. You thought it had a lot of weight to it? I thought it had some weight. Yeah. What, what was the outcome of that conversation? I think they got interrupted when her dad barged in, right? Is that what happened? Oh, is that when her dad barged in? Oh, yeah, I think you're and right. And he, like, knocked Dan unconscious and took her, or maybe I'm imagining that. I can't exactly remember how that part went down. That sounds right. Yeah. But. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I don't think it was concluded with a a definitive answer. Right, right. What, where their relationship goes from here. Yeah, and I mean that's a, that's really a sticky place to be in on a relationship, like especially if you just killed uh, the dad. And yeah, I feel like I'm about to be there with this neighbor cat upstairs. <laughs> yeah, things are about to get awkward. Yeah, uh, yeah I, and then I, I guess the other thing that was challenging uh, for me to buy into was Dan's. Uh, I I didn't see like I, nothing gave me the sense that he would go along with Herbert from like you know first his cat gets killed. And like you mentioned, like he was gonna, he was ready to kick Herbert out of there, and didn't want this guy was gonna blackmail him. But now he's like ready to like defend Herbert to the dean or uh, help him with this experiment. Like something in that transformation didn't make sense to me. I think he's just in utter awe of the fact that this dude can bring things back to life, and he doesn't care and about the cat anymore. People should know about it. Yeah, the cat's like a body under the bridge. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah, he's already forgotten about the cat. Yeah. All right. All right. Damn. Poor cat. Uh, you wish there was a scene to mourn the cat. Yeah, I feel like there should have been a stronger uh, emotional reaction to that that cat being gone. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. And Barbara Crampton did that for us. Yeah. Yeah. She gave us that human element. Uh, she yeah. she was great, man. She was she was my favorite in this. 
She's great. I mean, she's a really good performer. I, I dig her. I think yeah. her reputation is warranted. Right. Um, and did you like the the Doctor uh, Doctor Hill and Herbert West as well? I think, yeah. <laughs> Jeffrey Combs' performance in it was like, it was super over the top, but it was like exactly what it needed to be yeah. for the tone of this movie. I feel like it almost made the tone of this movie. Right. And Dr. Hill was a perfect, perfect skeezy villain. Yeah, I'm surprised we don't see him more. He's He like did that role really well. Yeah, uh, what's his name? David Gale. I feel like he's probably in a lot of stuff and we just mm. are either forgetting or aren't aware of it. Okay. But yeah, he nailed it. Yeah, yeah, I liked him a lot. Um, <clears throat> okay, let's see. Uh, zero to five headless bodies, what do you give this? Uh, I give this four headless bodies. Uh, it's a lot of fun to watch, really great effects, cool story, uh, fun characters, great char- uh, character development and relationships. Um, but yeah, for me, the, the only uh, weaknesses were a little... I, I felt like the main characters dropped out halfway through and uh, would have loved to have uh, more of a connection there. And and yeah, I, I feel like Barbara's character could have had more agency towards the end. That, that would have been cool. What about you? Sure. I give it a 4.5 out of 5. Uh, up from you, too? What's that? You're up, up from, from my two. two. Yeah, <laughs> I, I gave it a 2. I gave it a 4 when I watched it a few years back. I almost gave it a 5 this time. Damn. I just, I'm not sure what else somebody might want from this movie until hearing hearing your review, I suppose. <laughs> um, but yeah, interesting character dynamics, solid performances, and that evergreen theme of technological advances versus the natural order of things make it greater than the sum of its gory parts to me. Like, it's outrageously entertaining and gore and blood everywhere, but the performances and scripting keep it from being merely a popcorn movie to me. Yeah. There's something there and Mm -hmm. clearly stuff you can analyze if you're really looking for it and if you want to show people that you've read books. (laughs) Yeah. That seems important to one of us. Yeah, yeah. Dude, it was just this weird moment. I was reading this book, and I was like, oh, this could apply to this. And then I was looking at the citations, and they cited two other books that I actually own. <laughs> so I was, like, having this nerdy moment where I was, like, going through my personal library and following the breadcrumbs. Oh, man. Damn. And I, I felt like a pretty big nerd. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's only one way to describe that. <laughs> Great. Good for you, man. I'm glad your book collection is, is uh, paying off here. Thanks, man. I can read. I can read. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone knows it. Uh, anything else to say about the movie? Uh, that's it. Uh, you know, I also thought that the, the music during like the credits and stuff was fun and like the animation gave it a fun vibe. Yeah, yeah. It is so very psycho mm-hmm. uh, inspired that it it was hard for me to like not be distracted by that. But it also really fits, really fits the movie. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. Anything else? That's all I got. Okay, cool. Well, that was our discussion on Reanimator. Uh, if you have thoughts, feel free to share them with us, even if they are critical thoughts on that discussion. Um, if you want to connect with us, go to horrormovieclub.com. You can find the social links dropped down there. It will contain links to our Facebook and Twitter, where we say what movie we're covering next week, and links to our Discord, where we are chatting with other listeners and horror fans, and we've got a great community there. Uh, we also have an Instagram page under Horror Movie Club Podcast that may not be linked on our website yet. We've got a Patreon page. You can go to horrormovieclub.com and click the big orange button for Patreon to gain access to some bonus content for a dollar a month. 
Our logo is made by Amy Mae Popart. Check her out on Etsy.com. You can find her easily by searching Horror Movie Club Coaster Set, and that will also take you to a coaster set she designed that you can buy, one of which has our logo on it. And until next time, if your prospective roommate seems especially interested in your dingy cellar, uh, you may want to uh, move away from Craigslist and onto Facebook Marketplace. <laughs> Something more legit. Yeah. <laughs> Step it up enough. Makes sense. Though I've never actually used Facebook Marketplace, have you? Uh, no. I think I looked at a rug on there once. It was a nice rug. But I didn't yeah? Did it. Yeah. It's supposed to be good. The rug? Oh, uh, no. Facebook Marketplace. <laughs> <laughs> Heard good things about this rug. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Check it out on Facebook Marketplace. I will. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>